0: Hello, listener. Thanks for tuning in to the Future Foundations podcast. With me today is Dr. James Johnson, the Presidential Professor Emeritus of Finance at Northern Illinois University. Dr. Johnson's been working in the finance industry for over 30 years and has served as not only an expert witness in leasing disputes with over 20 retentions, but has made several major publications, including his most recent, the 2020 book, Retire a Millionaire Investing $2 a Day. I love reading through my copy. I'm grateful for his signature on it, and I thought he would be a great guest to have with us today. And so from there, I want to pass it off to Dr. Johnson. Please tell us about the origin of Retire a Millionaire.
1: Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, The origin of this really goes back a long way. When you have a a full-time job, it's hard to um, have a side hustle going where you're developing other products and services. So I kept I kept putting off writing this book but it had been rolling around in my head for at least a decade. And it really all started when I was looking for something in a finance max lecture that I taught at Northern for about a dozen years to try to make learning a financial calculator interesting. You want, you want to make it personal. So what I came up with is an example and I said, Let's see if we can figure out how you can retire accumulating $3 million tax-free over your career. And so we, we talked about the rate of return that the market has produced over the last 90 years and how much you might have to put aside your goal of $3 million. So we ran the financial calculator functions. And by the time they get done figuring it all out, I said, okay, who's got an answer for me? And then now it's, now it's personal because this is something they can do on their own. Mm-hmm. And so the students that did it right said, well, it looks like you'd have to put aside about $290 a month. And I said, that's it. That's all you'd have to do. And if you put it in a specific kind of investment vehicle, like a Roth IRA, when you, when you have your $3 million accumulated and you start withdrawing, you don't owe any taxes on it. You don't owe any federal taxes on it whatsoever. And if you, have to, if you happen to live in a state that's gonna tax your, your Roth IRA, which they're entitled to, then move to another state. If you live in California, which has a, a ridiculous personal income tax rate of 11 or 13%, move across the border to Nevada where there's no state income tax. <laughs> or if you live in uh, uh, Illinois, which right now we don't tax pensions, Uh, Oddly enough, I'm I'm sure eventually they'll discover that there's another revenue opportunity to be had, but right now there's no tax on us. There's no tax in Tennessee or Florida, Mm -hmm. and there are a total of about 11 or 12 states that don't tax it. So as you approach getting old and say, okay, I'm gonna think about retiring now, it's gonna matter to you where you choose to live. Uh, If you'll scroll to the next slide, please, James.
0: No problem. <clears throat>
1: um, that that example that I used in that mass lecture turned into this book. Eventually, I had to add a, a bunch of stuff to it <laughs> because uh, I wanted this to be a turnkey for somebody who's a, a forestry major or a registered nurse or a pre-med student or whatever they are. They say, this is, this. is I need to know this stuff, but I don't know this stuff. And I didn't want to uh, bore them to death with having, saying here are the 80 different things you could be doing because then people just give up. They say, that's just too complicated. Right. So, so I, I deliberately made this turnkey, seven points, that's it. There are many, many other ways to accumulate a lot of money. This is simply one of them. And I tried to make it as pain-free as possible and to motivate people to to get going I've given some, I think, pretty dramatic examples on what happens if you don't get started at an early age. So there's only seven points. And by the time you get through this, it's only 40 pages. By the time you get through it, you'll be able to start your own uh, wealth accumulation process. And the best thing to do is just keep following it until you decide you want to get off the work train and retire. I shouldn't have called it a retirement book, though, because if you say t- retire to a 20 year old, they say that's not going to happen for decades and decades. And they just stop listening. I should have named it wealth accumulation, right? Because that can mean almost anything. It means how to pile up a bunch of money. <laughs> so that would have been a much better title than the one that I chose. But I'm stuck with it. Um, well,
0: a, I think it was a standout title myself. Um, oh. A lot of people in my generation, I think they, they've they started to think that they're not even going to be able to retire. And so they just look at the word millionaire and might even skip over thinking about retirement at all. Um, that's all I saw was millionaire investing $2. And I was like, well, that sounds interesting.
1: <laughs> I can do and that.
0: <laughs> chop the front and the back off. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so obviously I want to keep the the majority of the information in here proprietary for you so that I'm not um, you know, spoiling it for anybody at home. But I wanted to ask you some questions about individual points within it. And so I'm going to jump right into point number two, if you're willing. If you've got your own plan to get there, we can go through that stuff first, though. Just let me know.
1: Okay, fire away.
0: All right. So uh, the second key that you put in here is choosing a tax account and an investment firm now. And I think <laughs> that it's good because a lot of people, when they're my age, you know, and they're just starting to make any money, they aren't thinking about their long-term plan. They're thinking about, okay, yes, pay off loans, but then now raise my you know standard of living a little bit and right. live up a little. So I right. guess I wanted to ask you about some of the pros and cons for why someone would hire an accountant or hire a tax you know uh, planner for them early on in their career. What makes it so important? And how can you uh, tell if the person you're going to go and choose to work for you is going to do the job well, especially if you've never worked with a tax planner or an accountant before?
1: Good question. Uh, You don't need very much time from a tax accountant. But again, as part of the turnkey uh, objective of this book, uh, I give you the the contact information for a tax accountant. He's an NIU accounting grad. Mm -hmm. He's licensed to do tax preparation. He's been doing it for a long, long time. I had his daughter as a student at Northern and she's joined the firm. And so she's available as well. And I talked to him and I said, I'll be happy to reference you in my book. What what would you charge for uh, counseling somebody about whether they should be investing in, their, in an IRA or a 401k or something? He mm-hmm. said, oftentimes uh, we don't charge anything because it's the getting started is a very, very simple process. Down the road, they might charge maybe, I don't know, 50, 100 bucks, something like that. But it'd be very, very nominal. And again, mm-hmm. this is just one more, obstacle that you can knock down right away saying, I'm going to call Ed Harrison, here's his number, he's in Aurora, Illinois, and uh, he doesn't do a lot of personal meetings right now because of the pandemic, but you can, sure. talk, you can talk to him or his daughter, who are both uh, qualified accountants, and say, what, what should I be doing, what's my maximum contribution, et cetera, et cetera, and so you just want to touch base with him. He's been doing my taxes for about five years. Mm. as well as I uh, get guidance from him from time to time. And he's very good at it. Uh, so I highly recommend that you, you, you check this box off. You say, okay, when I, when I need my taxes done, I'm going to go to Ed Harrison. And in return for that, he might very well give you some, quote, free time, unquote, because mm-hmm. he's doing your taxes anyway. And to do my taxes, which isn't terribly complicated, I think I, I, think I charged 250 or 300 bucks a year so it's not a big deal. There's, right. no, there's no reason not to engage him or somebody else. If you, if you already have a friend of the family who's a tax accountant or maybe mom and dad have an accountant that they use, by all means, use that. I'm just trying not to, I'm trying to take this away from you as a potential excuse not to get started.
0: <laughs> no, I love that. Um, I think it's pretty interesting. I know from my most recent research, only like 33% of Americans file their own tax return. And the main reason, as far as I'm aware, is literally just the hassle. And so if you can find an inexpensive or relatively inexpensive way to outsource that hassle, I think it does have some some real upside potential. I guess in order to make that worth the time for outsourcing, how much would you say somebody has to be making or earning it on average per year before that that becomes worthwhile? If, If you're still working minimum wage, is it still worth doing? I guess would be the, the easier way to ask that question.
1: Uh, if you're making minimum wage, you might not be in a position to uh, put aside much of anything, uh, but it depends on which minimum wage we're talking about. McDonald's is now up to $21 an hour. Right. And that would be an example of a minimum wage uh, <laughs> person who would probably want to start investing. And my my only point is that you should contact Make it make it, establish a relationship with a tax accountant, so that in your very first go around, you can start putting money aside in an IRA, and they'll tell you how to do it.
0: Right, and then you touched on earlier how distributions from an IRA on the back end they come out tax free. I want to make sure that I uh, explain the point properly, so I'm going to run it by you. The reason IRAs work that way is because they're tax they're taxed at um, well, you're putting in after-tax dollars, right? You're 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 paying the tax on the income already, and then when you put it into the investment vehicle, there's no more tax to be paid because you've already accounted for that income. Am I well, doing let, that correctly?
1: Let Let me just recap it at the risk of being uh, repetitive. There, sure. there are two two basic IRAs. One is a traditional, and one is a Roth. If you do a traditional, you put and let's say you put in a thousand dollars this year you can deduct that $1,000 contribution on your income taxes. So you, you've saved yourself, let's say, two or $300. Okay. Then, when you take it out, when you retire, it's fully taxable because you never paid taxes on it. You got a tax deduction. But if you put your money in a Roth, the Roth IRA, you're putting in after-tax dollars. So you pay taxes when you put the money in. Therefore, when you take the money out, it's not taxed.
0: Okay. So standard IRA is pre-tax contributions. Roth is post-tax contributions. Yes. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. All right. Um, and then I know you address in here the, the consequences of starting later in life. Do you want to talk about how that works? You know, how, how, how is the value of that money lost or how can you make up for lost time the later you start doing this, especially if you're someone who didn't know that there was such a simple way to get started until, let's say, 35
1: Okay, to, to, to give you a graphic answer to that, let's go over to slide 11. Okay.
0: There, can you see that?
1: Yeah, I, th- I see that. Thank you. This, I think this is one answer to your question. If you start saving when you're 22 years old to, to accumulate a million dollars by investing in a portfolio of common stocks, you only need to set aside $70 a month. And the total that you would have contributed over your entire uh, career is only $36,000. And you can see if you start saving when you're 32, you get out of school, you say, oh, I've, got, I've got loans, I need another car. And you you know, you give yourself 30 different reasons why you can't save anything. So you give yourself 10 years off. Starting at 32, you have to put it put aside three times as much to get to exactly the same endpoint of a million dollar accumulation. Right. And you can see how, how insane this gets over time. If you wait till you're 52, by now you've been divorced twice, you've got all kinds of bills. <laughs> so, so you had to wait 30 years. Now, monthly, instead of $70 a month, you have to put aside $2,700 a month to get to the million dollar accumulation. And the total amount that you put in personally would be over $400,000. So this is about as dramatic as as I can make it to convince everybody to start saving at the earliest possible moment and let the money ride, just leave it alone. I've had several people tell me, well, you know, some of us millennials and and other people are worried about quality of life, would rather do a lot of things now rather than having to put them off. Well, this actually is consistent with wanting to do other things with your life. By starting early, you don't have to put aside that much. That's the magic of compounding that does all the work for you. All you had to do was get started.
0: I think that was really well put. Thanks very much. Um, Just in case the slides don't get put up, it's, it's broken down really well and I'm gonna make them available for download for anyone who wants to see them if I can't get the video to work. This is, uh, you're right, it's stark, the difference between not just how much you have to contribute monthly as you get older, but then what your total percentage of the outcome would be. Uh, for example, the the gap between 22 and 32, oh, that's like what, 52, 53 grand difference in contributions. But then 32 and 42 is 120 grand difference. That's insane. Right. Right. And yeah, I agree completely. It's part of what motivated me to start learning more about this after I read your book was just- you know, I, I got I to gotta make the plan as, as airtight as possible, but also as soon as possible. I can't wait and settle down and then think about it. You got to start it early. So thanks for this. Okay. Um, my next main topic here is, is kind of a current event cycle, um, looking at inflation as we've seen it happening, and then the interest rates that are hiking up and recession kind of pricing into the market. What do you think will be the result of this most recent rate hike that we saw from the Fed? And how do you think that'll affect the next six months or so? I ask because um, I've, I've heard some chatter from the people that I talk to that the next six months are probably going to be some of the best six months we'll see in the next two years. But that was before some of the most recent uh, news came into effect. And so I wanted to hear maybe your perspective on that.
1: Okay. Uh, let, me, let me make a side comment first that you know accumulating wealth and, and doing it efficiently is, is boring. It's very, very boring because I'm a great believer in what we call buy and hold strategies. Mm-hmm. Instead of churning your account or hopping from, from a hot stock to a hot stock, which is a great way to lose a lot of money, my opinion and what everything I've got in this book is based upon is you putting your money in a well-diversified portfolio of common stocks and leaving it alone. And just completely leaving it alone. So, to look at short-term windows um, is not really something that I spend much time on. Okay. Nor, nor do people like Warren Buffett spend much time on it, because he, he's he's a value investor. Meaning, mm-hmm. in his very folksy way of talking, I'm looking for a stock that's worth a hundred that's selling for ten. <laughs> I and, and and then I get in, I jump in up to my eyeballs and stay there. So he. He's a, he's a long-termer, um, they, might, they might hold a stock for 20 years, 30 years, in some cases, just depends. So worrying about what's going on short-term is not really a, a healthy uh, thing to be doing. You should be just viewing, how much am I gonna put in every year, be consistent and let it mm-hmm. ride.
0: And that goes right back to your $2 a day. Um, I I use this similar system and I've been doing it now for about a year of dollar cost averaging, where I, I assume that, you know, on average over the lifetime, it's gonna cost about the same, whether it goes up or down. But then I try to keep an eye out for if some of my quote favorite stocks, I have a couple tech, a couple indexes that I'll buy into when they go on sale is kind of how I do it. So, you know, right now when people are are feeling rocky about things and it's a little bit more volatile. I'm looking for oh, I might throw an extra thirty dollars in while it hits a fifty-two week low, you know. But I'm not going to cancel my automatic dollar fifty or three fifty or two dollar investment that I'm making every day. I would just buy a little extra when it's cheaper. What do you think about that? Just curious.
1: I think that's a, I think that's a wise way to go. Uh, okay. If, but you know, if you want to just have fun with the market put something outside of an IRA so that you can trade individual stocks and maybe you get burned or maybe you make a bunch of money, but it, but it's, it's all money that you are willing to lose. Mm. But in your retirement program in your wealth accumulation, you want to have a consistent amount every month or every quarter or every year. And and again, just let it ride. But to have fun, you put, you put speculative money aside. And then do with that whatever you want to, because that's a lot more interesting than it is to go through the boring process of wealth accumulation where you just buy and hold. Exactly. Two different worlds. Yeah. One, one thing to point out, um, <clears throat> a lot of people think, I, I can't invest in the stock market. It's just way too risky. Well, what do you mean by risky? <laughs> because if you go back to 1928, we've had 17 down market cycles over the last 90 some years in every single case the market came back and you recovered all the money you lost the worst one being 1929 Mm -hmm. and you lost even if you held the market index you lost two-thirds of your money but within four years you got it all back and if you think about it if that wasn't always true if you couldn't always buy the market and hold the market And recover from any downslide, there'd be no stock market. People would say, I don't want to lose everything. Right. The the way you can lose everything is to buy one company and watch it blow up.
0: (laughs) That's not wrong. That's not wrong at all. Uh, I think that you make the great point that everybody wants to, you know, look at the first half of that equation and then they forget about what happens after the crash. They forget about the recovery entirely. Right. Um, Yeah. And then I, I think I already know the answer to this one based on what you've already said, but I was gonna kind of ask you, do you think cycles in the market or do you think trends overall dictate performance or rationale? But it sounds to me like you're more of a, a long-term trend person.
1: Yes, if you, lo- if you look at a chart of the stock market, <clears throat> it looks like uh, the, the track marks of a drunk who's staggering along. But the more, the more you open that window, to a longer and longer time frame, you realize that this drunk has a purpose, and the drunk's purpose is to, on average over time, stagger up this hill in an eleven percent return per year. Mm-hmm. So there are going to be ups and downs from that, and it's not certainly not a straight line, but on average over time, the market has returned eleven and a half percent over long periods of time. And mm-hmm. I took nineteen twenty eight to twenty nineteen and cut it into two pieces, and looked at the return in the first 45 years, in the second 45 years, and they were within three percentage points of each other, 10% versus 13%. So all over long periods of time, the market will take care of you very nicely. And to finally backfill and answer your question about inflation, inflation over the last 90 years has been about 3%. The return on the market over the last ninety years has been at eleven and a half percent, so you can make a great case for saying common stocks have been a terrific hedge against inflation, coming out three points eight. I'm sorry, eight points ahead.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's simple math at that point. Once you compare them. All right. So, do you think, Dr. Johnson, that the younger generation then can really benefit from this high inflation if we know the market is going to outperform it on average? Would it be worthwhile to you know, use this in a way almost to invest against their debt um, and let the inflation eat away at their debt while their investment grows? Or would it be better for them to focus on fighting the rising interest rates and ignore long-term planning for the sake of paying down debt sooner?
1: Well, let's say for a moment, you have two choices. You graduate from college. And you have uh, student loans that are costing you 6%, or you can put more money in an IRA and make double that. Um, I think the best thing to do is say, all right, I don't like having student loans. On the other hand, making 11% is a heck of a lot better than making, than saving six. So that's a good trade.
0: Now, is that 11% typically simple interest, or is it going to be compounding like the the loan would be?
1: Well, the if you go to uh, there's a guy named Damodarian, who's a finance genius at New York University. He has a a bunch of information on rates of return on the market uh, over long periods of time, and the the average. Of course, sometimes you end up losing money. Sometimes you make more, but the average rate of return over the last ninety years has been eleven and a half percent. So that's not really. Uh, um, interest bearing. That's just what the yield has been. If you put your money in common stocks and leave it there.
0: Okay. I think that does answer my question. All right. And so then if somebody's trying to get started with wealth generation, if they're trying to, you know, get in there, but they, like you've said, are, are not maybe on the intelligentsia side of things, they're not finance people. They're more of a lay person. Would it be better for them to get into a Roth or a regular IRA that's focused on investing in individual stocks, or would it be better for them to be investing towards maybe an index fund or ETF, that kind of thing? Which do you think is a better tool for my generation?
1: I think for your generation, you're much better off, far better off to invest in a common stock fund, either ETF, exchange traded funds, or else a mutual fund. And if you say, well, I, I don't have any idea how to go about doing that, then in the book, I give you the contact information for Vanguard, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorites because they have extremely low expense ratios because they don't try to beat the market. And with all those millions that they save, not trying to beat the market, they pass it on to you in a form of a very, very modest expense charge at the end of each year. So you call the number at Vanguard, they will help you get set up. They'll make sure you get whatever forms you need to get started. And bang, that's all you have to do about picking an investment firm. If you pick Fidelity or somebody else or Vanguard, and then in a couple of years you say, I I think I'd rather put my money in another fund, no problem. They'll send you a conversion kit and you just roll it someplace else. So the important point is don't panic about which investment firm you pick, just get started. and If you end up finding somebody you think is better, then by all means, move your money to the other one.
0: Very cool. You're, you're not right.
1: making a 40-year decision.
0: It's true. You're making a, a, a kickstart kind of decision. Am I Yeah, gonna... you're just
1: trying to get going.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay. What kind of Tinder are you using? And then from there, you can control the flame.
1: Absolutely. Awesome.
0: Well, I got a few questions here that are just to kind of get to know you and how you think about things a little bit better. Um, and just the state of the world. If you were, let's say, a uh, Fed chair for a day, if they gave you the, the Jerome Powell hat, what kind of advice would you uh, give or what kind of you know quick changes would you make if you had that authority to make the system just work a little bit better?
1: I actually think they're doing what they should be doing. I think the number one concern right now is the rate of inflation. Mm. And it's, be, it's being very stubborn. It's coming down very slowly. It, it peaked at nine point one, and then we were at eight point seven, and then eight point three mm-hmm. or eight point four, something like that. And remember, the long run rate of return or the long run inflation rate is only three percent over the last ninety years. Mm-hmm. So eight percent is a big deal. We're running about three times what's normal. Yeah. And so once you once you break the back of inflation, you get it to slow down to a, a sustainable and acceptable level. And they've also picked a rate of something the either two or three percent. I think they're making the right moves to do that. As you notch up interest rates, that has the effect of cooling down the economy. Things Mm -hmm. start to slow down. People buy a little bit less house. Maybe they put off certain purchases and the net effect is to grind down the rate of inflation. I'm not really worried about inflation being a long-term problem. In the last 90 years, the rate of inflation has never been over 9% for more than four years running. And then t- tends to fall off because the Fed is able to get things to slow down to the point that it inf- basically takes care of itself. Right. What do you think about
0: the? I know they've taken some steps for active demand destruction aside from just interest rate hikes. Do you think that those are um, riskier than the interest rate hiking is, or do you think that it's still the same level of uh, influence on the market?
1: I've not heard that phrase before. What does that mean, James? Demand
0: destruction. It's kind of when the government starts buying up securities for the sake of taking them off the market. And like they'll buy up subprime uh, debt for the sake of taking it out of the hands of uh, public institutions or private institutions, sorry. And basically to just free up some liability from the private shareholders. But then at the same time, to allow them to get out and let the market cool down. But then when you get into things like agriculture, demand destruction becomes like when the government will buy up crops and then literally destroy them so that people can't buy them, which drives prices up, but drives demand down.
1: I'm a, I'm a big fan of sticking to monetary policy and not mm-hmm. these other cute things. Uh, I don't think the, our government is really very good at det- determining Uh, buy and sell prices for commodities and other, Mm. other crops and so on. Interest rates are something that pretty much everybody understands and they know that the higher the rate gets, uh, the less likely you are to buy a house or the more likely you are to buy less house (laughs) and do other things that will automatically help bring down the rate of inflation.
0: Sure. I was just curious. And then um, uh, this one's again, another kind of general one about your life and your career. Over the years that you've been doing this and teaching this and learning more about it as kind of a matter of course, what would you say is the most surprising thing that stuck out to you or the most like kind of Eureka or Black Swan moment out there that you've experienced in all your years?
1: In all my years, I would say the the thing that uh, always amazes me is that is that buy and hold a diversified portfolio of common stocks is the best one in strategy I can think of. And you know, I when I was 25, I used to think I was smarter than everybody else, and I'm going to buy individual companies. And mm-hmm. after I did that a few times and, and had my investments blow up on me, I realized how goofy that was. You know, everybody who put their, their money in something like Enron lost everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the employees at Enron had to have their 401k in Enron stock. They lost everything. Um, buying individual stocks is a very, very dangerous thing to do because any one company can go under at any time and you can lose all of your money. But if right. you're in a well-diversified portfolio of common stocks, that will never happen. It'll it'll volatile, but it's not risky. Risky means you you could lose money. The only way sure. you can lose money in the stock market is to panic when the market declines and sell off. There you've there you've locked in a loss. Right. Congratu- congratulations. You, you didn't need to do that. Every, every, you know, the, every time the market has gone into a slide 17 times in history, every time the market has come back 100%, and it happens usually in less than four years, and the median time to recover your money after the market slides 9% on average, it only takes you about 1.1 year to get right back where you started. Mm-hmm. So that, I, I would not call that risky. Volatile, you bet, but not risky.
0: Yeah speaking of kind of the demand for, for or the appetite for risk out there um, with these next six months, you know, looking a little bit more gaunt to some people and looking like they might be the best of the next two years to other people. Um, would you say that risk appetite is uh, going to be a big factor in getting started for people? Like if there, if we have three times inflation rate average, right? If we have demand falling in most of the markets, and then we've got people unable to buy more. Are they going to be interested in getting more interest for the things they do buy? Or do you think people are going to kind of retract in and not be interested in gains so much as stability? I'm just curious, projecting, th- you know?
1: Again, I think the best thing to do is, is not worry about the, the, short, the short view, but mm-hmm. the, work on the long view. And no matter mm-hmm. what's going on, just keep investing, like you know, dollar cost averaging, as you suggested earlier. Anything where you're periodically making investments in the market, and you just leave it, it'll take care of itself.
0: Okay, thanks very much. Well, you've said to me that LinkedIn is usually the best way to reach out to you. Um, it's just Dr. James Johnson on there, or James M. Johnson, I think. And then, if other people want to contact you, would that be the best way for them to reach you as well?
1: Uh, can you go? Let's see.
0: Yeah, we've got a contact slide for you, I believe.
1: I think I have my email address on the, on the very first slide. Okay, James Johnson at NIU.edu. Yep, you have so, it on the back
0: slide too, here we go. Okay,
1: just feel free to send me an email if you want. If you're interested in an autographed copy of the book, I'll take care of that for you. We take <laughs> either Venmo or, uh, or Zelle if you wanna uh, save a couple bucks. You can do it through Amazon, and I've showed you the links for the uh, paperback, which is nine ninety five plus shipping, unless you're a Prime member. And the ebook has no shipping, and it's only, I think it's two dollars and ninety nine cents. So for the price of a pack of cigarettes in Chicago, you can learn how to start your wealth accumulation journey.
0: Yeah, and he he's modest. He didn't tell everybody, but when I got mine, there was a a twenty dollars Johnson Buck bill in it. So. <laughs>
1: yeah we're still giving those out it's a piece of history man i keep it right
0: next to uh i have a couple other you know funny money that that i've found over the years and this one's this one's on the pile now so hey thank you so much for your time today um i do you have any final words for listeners other than i know there's some points that we've uh we've gone over two or three times now but anything else you want to impart before we close out
1: yes uh if you if you go to vanguard and you say, okay, I'm, I, I get the message. I want to start saving early because I'll have to put aside a lot less money. That way I, I'm completely on board with that. And you go to Vanguard, you say, now what? Well, Vanguard and all the other investment firms available to you, Fidelity and so on, will show you the return earned on each one of their funds. What you want to do, if you're looking for check marks, you want a no-load fund, which means you're not paying a commission for a salesman to sell it to you. So no-loads are, are vanguard and other funds that are not do not have a sales force. They Everything is transacted online. So you want a no-load fund. Look at the performance of all their funds. They'll tell you the, the rate of return that they've earned on each one of the funds for the amount of time that it's spent in existence. And you want to make sure it's 100% common stocks. You don't want any bonds of any kind or any other debts. You just want a common stock fund because that is one of the best ways to um, hedge against inflation and earn that 115 percent return versus the three uh, percent that you would earn uh, if you had a if you bought a a ten year treasury bond. So you want common stocks only, no load fund, and you want a, a company like a Vanguard. No, they don't pay me a fee for saying this, but <laughs> they they are their expense ratio is 80% less than the average expense ratio amongst all mutual funds. So that would be my advice on how to get started. Which fund? You tell me, go in and look at them, look at the performance, pick one. And if you decide you want to put your money in more than one fund, by all means do that. Or if you decide I want to switch funds, I've decided I want to go with this fund rather than that one, move your money. You can do it all yourself online. You don't, you don't need a broker or an investment counselor or anybody else.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I hope you have a great afternoon and thanks Thank for you. listening everybody out there.
1: Thanks James. Yeah, absolutely.
0: This has been uh, episode two of the future foundations podcast folks. Thanks for listening in.